All right, we are continuing in our meandering, if you will, through 1 Kings. We're not preaching through 1 Kings in the sense of which we're going verse by verse every chapter. We are kind of going through. Last week we began this journey. We were in 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, this week we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 13. So if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 13, uh, we'll be a couple of minutes before we get there. We've got to set the stage. Um, because we aren't preaching like we typically do this, this year, things are different. We're not, we're, since we're not going exactly verse by verse through every single chapter of the books that we're going through, we have to take a few minutes in the beginning to kind of get us caught up to where we are so that we're, we're within the context and we don't kind of pull it out of the context, especially today's text. Uh, this one could be real easy to pull out of context. We want to make sure it, it stays where it is. Um, but as you're turning there, i uh, just kind of remind you, last week we had our first sermon in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 10. We talked about the life of Solomon. Really what it was was an overview of the life of Solomon. And we, we saw that the, that the author was wanting us to see that though Solomon looked like everything was great with him, everything was the way that it should be, like Solomon was the one we should be waiting for, there were really warning signs in Solomon's life that he was not the one who was coming, that there was another one needed. There was one, a true and better Solomon, one greater than Solomon who was coming. And we saw that that was ultimately Jesus. Uh, this week as I was studying, it was interesting. I found a, uh, a verse that Jesus said. He was talking to the, the Pharisees. They were looking for a sign. And Jesus said this, The queen of the south will rise up to the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so, just in case you might think, oh yeah, well we, we look at this and it's like, oh yeah, we'll spiritualize it. There's one greater than Solomon coming. Jesus himself said that the Queen of Sheba that we talked about last week, who came to hear Solomon's wisdom, Jesus himself said, there's one greater than Solomon here, referring to himself. And so we see this and we see that all of the Bible is meant to point us ultimately to Jesus. Well, this week what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward just a little bit from Solomon's life and Solomon's reign and look at the reign of another king. Um, and here's where we go. So, so in 1 Kings chapter 10, everything looks great. We hinted into 1 Kings chapter 11 last week where everything was going well. And then we saw that in 1 Kings 11, in those first few verses, it says that Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord. And the reason why his heart was turned away that we find in 1 Kings 11 is that Solomon really enjoyed being married, I guess, so much that he got 700 wives. And the Bible says that all of those wives, many of them were from foreign nations that weren't the nations that they were supposed to marry from. They were nations they were supposed to uh, avoid. Solomon had 700 wives. And when he married all these women, what he did is he brought them in from these nations that were worshiping other gods and following false religions. What what Solomon did was he would bring them in and then he would build them a place where they could worship their God. And so now you've got all these different people from all the different nations brought in. And instead of Solomon working to want to turn their hearts to the one true God, what happened is, is that all of these pagan idol worshipers that he married, he built them places for them to serve their own gods. And we find that especially in his older age, he began going with them. And he was worshiping all of these false gods right along beside them. And it says that his heart was turned. And so when that happened, the Bible says that God raised up adversaries for Solomon. And so we go through there and we see he was, he was angry with Solomon. And then we're told of a meeting between this prophet named Ahijah and a man named Jeroboam. 
Now, Jeroboam was the guy that Solomon had set over the forced labor of the tribe of Joseph. Now, the forced labor, what we find as we're reading this, was people who weren't Israelites, who were still in the land, they were basically kind of gathered up, and, and for lack of a better term, they were slave labor to build these projects that Solomon had been building. And so Solomon, he gets all these people together, and so there's different groups of these people all around the country, and then the ones that were in the area of Joseph, Solomon saw this guy named Jeroboam, and saw that he was skilled, and saw that he had, you know, I guess, good management skills and stuff, and so he set them over the forced labor of Joseph. So we see this, and then all of a sudden there's this meeting on the middle of the road between Ahijah and Jeroboam. Now Ahijah is a prophet, and he comes out and he's wearing a brand new garment, and he comes out and he meets Jeroboam, and he starts ripping his garment to shreds. One of those stories in the Bible, you're like, what's going on? And he rips it into 12 pieces, and he hands Jeroboam 10 of them. And this is what he says. He says, Solomon's heart's turned from God, and God is going to pull the kingdom from him, and he's going to give you 10 of the tribes. But because of his promise to David, he was going to leave uh, Solomon's lineage two of the tribes. And so if you've ever heard about the split when the nation of Israel split between the ten tribes of the north and Judah and Benjamin, this is when this is going to happen. So he doesn't do it during Solomon's reign. God says, I won't do it during Solomon's reign because of my promise to David. So Solomon's son Rehoboam, not to be confused with Jeroboam, comes up and he's anointed king. Well, Rehoboam is as foolish as Solomon is wise. And so Rehoboam now comes to the throne. Jeroboam, who had been in exile fleeing from Solomon because Solomon wanted to kill him because he found out God was going to give him part of his kingdom. Jeroboam comes back and he says, all right, your, your father was very harsh in a lot of ways, a lot of things he didn't do right. We want you to not put as much labor on us. And Rehoboam says, no, you thought that my father was harsh. I'm going to be even more harsh on you. And at that point in time, Jeroboam says, what are we to do with the house of David? And he takes the ten tribes away. So now at this point in time, Rehoboam is king of Judah, and now Jeroboam has become king of the ten tribes. And this nation that was supposed to be unified, that God had brought together, that was supposed to be centralized around the temple, worshiping God, being a light for all the nations around, because of their disobedience, has now split. And Jeroboam is now king of these northern ten tribes. Now, as we get to 13, which is where we are, there's, we're, we're almost caught up. Jeroboam now has gotten, he's the king of all this. God has given this to him. A prophet has told him this. And what Jeroboam does is Jeroboam builds these two golden calves. And what he says is, if all the people go back to Jerusalem to worship, if they go back to the temple to worship, their hearts are going to turn to Rehoboam. And then they're not going to follow me. They're not going to want to be under my ruler, my, under my, my reign. So what I've got to do is I've got to make another place for them to worship so they don't even go back to Jerusalem. And he says he made these two golden calves. And he put one in a city called Shechem and one in a city called Bethel. And he put them there. And the people would, he said, don't go to Jerusalem anymore. Go worship there. And what we're hinted at, if you will remember, if it sounds familiar of a golden calf that the people were worshiping, the author is hinting back to the Exodus for us. He's causing us to remember, hey, do you remember God brought all the people of Israel out of Egypt? Moses was on the mountain, and what happened? While Moses was on the mountain, 
Aaron was building a golden calf. And the people were bowing down and worshiping it. And it was disobedience. The author is trying to let us know right now something very, very, very bad is happening here. And that's where we pick up. That's where we pick up. That's the end of chapter 12. Now we pick up with chapter 13. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to read. We're going to read chapter 13 in its entirety. It's 34 verses. This is a long chapter. And we're going we're to read the whole thing. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand might be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the man and God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten in the place which he said, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. 
And they came and told it to the city, in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, Is, the, is it the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord? Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it, and he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that called... The saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the author in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for our time together this morning. Father, we believe that the scriptures are yours given to us for our good, for your glory, for our building up. So we pray, Father, that you would take this word now and do that very thing. We love you and we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes you read stories and you look at them and you're trying to figure out why in the world God would include that in the Bible. Maybe you didn't think that when you just heard me read this story, but I'm going to be completely honest with you. This week, as I read this, I thought, why in the world is this story in the Bible? R- really, just, just honestly, I, I looked at this and I was like, you know, I get Jesus walking on water. I know why that, that's good. I see why that one's in there. Parting of the Red Sea. Yeah, I'm good with that one. And, and I could have preached. I was supposed to preach somewhere between 1 Kings 11 and 1 Kings 20. So you got Elijah and the prophets of Baal and, and some of these different stories that are a little more familiar. I was like, maybe I'll go with them. But this one just stood out to me really because I looked at it and I said, I have no clue why this is here. Why do we need to know this? And so what I said was, maybe I'm alone. But maybe I'm not. And if there's anybody else out here who's wondering why in the world a story like this might be in here, maybe I should spend a little bit of time in this story and see what God would have us learn. And maybe together we can see how we can learn some things from these stories that seem a good bit random to us. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So what I want to do is I want to kind of, as we've read this text, I won't go verse by verse, but I was reading it and studying it and asking, and there's four things that I'd like for us to talk about this morning, that, that we learn from this story that are good for us. The first thing that I want us to know is this. The message is more important than the messenger. The message is more important for, than the messenger. What I mean by that is this. One of the things that stood out to me when I first read this, and I don't know if it stood out to you, is we don't know the man of God's name. Over and over and over again, he's the man of God from Judah, man of God from Judah. Now that seems strange to me because even like the story of Jeroboam getting the ten pieces of the cloak, 
where the, the nation is being handed to him, we're told Ahijah's name. He's in there for less time than this man of God. Almost every single person who comes up in these narratives, any person who's central in the story, their name is told to us. And so we, we, we know this detail about them. But in this story, it just seems odd to me that all we know is that he's a man of God from Judah. So I spent some time wondering, okay, why isn't this guy's name given? But then it hit me. His name's not important. What difference does it make if I know his name? The author's not worried about me knowing what his name is. The author's worried about me knowing what his message is. So let's think about this. This guy, he's called out of Judah. God calls him from Judah, not in the ten tribes, but in the other tribes. He calls them out to the altar where Jeroboam is about to be sacrificing. And what he says is there's going to be a descendant of David, and he gives his name, which is unique amongst all the prophecies. I mean, this is so very specific. There's a descendant of David who is going to come and he is actually going to sacrifice the priest on this altar and burn bones on it and desecrate it so that nobody else would use it. This thing that would be done would be so shameful that even those who were following this twisted practice would look at that and say, I'm not, I, I can't sacrifice there. Don't you see what's been done there? It's been desecrated. And what we find is that in 2 Kings 23, verses 15 through 16, Josiah, a descendant of David is bringing revival to the land and he goes to Bethel and he actually sacrifices people on the altar and then he digs up the bones and he burns them on the altar so that no one would ever sacrifice there again. And then he says, and just so that you know, Jeroboam, that this is actually going to happen, just so you know, because it's not going to happen right now and you won't see it, but I want to give you a sign just so you know that what God says is true is really going to happen this altar is going to be torn in two and all the ashes from the sacrifices that have been offered now are going to spill out. Well, this makes Jeroboam very angry because now you've got this guy who has been given 10 of the tribes, has been given this kingship. He's turned his heart completely from God. He says, this is how I'm going to keep control. The prophet comes and says, all of this is going to be smashed and taken from you. And so he gets angry. What does he do? He stretches out his hand towards the man of God. And as he does, it says that his hand dried up. Now what this means, it could mean it, could mean it shriveled. It could mean that it became immobile, that it was just kind of stuck out there. So now he's walking around like this. Whatever. But whatever it was, he couldn't use it. It was this miraculous thing of God. And this language, once again causes us to go back to the Exodus story. Because if you search the word stretch out his hand, multiple times that's used of Moses. He would stretch out his hand. He would do this. And as he did, God would move. But this picture is showing us that Jeroboam is not a man like Moses who's going to lead the people the right way. He's a man who's wickedest. He's the opposite of Moses. He's not leading people the way that they should. And so now he's got this withered hand. And as the hand goes out and is withered, the altar miraculously breaks in two and all the ashes spill out. We don't know, have to know anything about the man of God to know that the message was given to him by God and that it's true because of all the things that ha happened. Can I tell you something? 
This translates directly to us who are followers of Christ. You see, as a follower of Christ, our message is, is the gospel. And our command is to make disciples. And the way that it translates that is like this. If, you, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your heart to him, you're a disciple of Christ, our command that Jesus has given us is to make disciples. Tell other people the gospel, walk with them as they grow in the gospel, help them to become more like Jesus. And so many times we hear that command, and what we say is, well, I can't do that. I'm not, I don't know enough about the Bible. I've not been in church long enough. I'm not smart enough to do that. I can't answer everybody's question. I'm so busy. I'm so... And if you'll notice, every single one of those statements starts with, I can't do that. I don't know enough. I'm too busy. And what we do is instead of looking at the message and the command of God, we turn our eyes, as it were, back to the messenger. We don't believe, really, the power of the message. We don't believe that he who called us will be faithful and equip us to do that because we turn our eyes to the messenger and we say, the messenger can't do this. Messenger, and this passage that helps us to see the message is more important makes us think about the fact that when God calls us, he doesn't call us because we're the best. We're the strongest. We have it all together. His eyes don't search out who are the ones who've been trained the most and who will be the most willing, who are the most able. In fact, what it reminds me of is the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul writes this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul doesn't write this to shame the Corinthians. He's not saying, man, think about y'all selves. Y'all were dumb. You were backwoods. Nobody loved you. You were losers. That's not what he's doing here. He's not trying to just show them how bad they were. But what he does is he, he really lays out in front of them. Think about who you were when you were called. Had you achieved all of this? Had you earned your way? Had you sanctified yourself and become the most holy, the most wise, the ones who were on top of everything? He says, no, that's not where you were. But when God called you, it wasn't because of your wisdom, but Jesus is your wisdom. It wasn't because your righteousness, but it's because Jesus is your righteousness. And the very thing that you don't have, Jesus provides for you. So can I encourage you with something? We don't know this guy's name. All we know is what he came to say. It doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter any of that. What matters is the one who has called you is faithful and he's called you to make disciples. And you know what that does? It guards us against a sense of inadequacy because the reality is we're all inadequate for this. 
but it also guards us against a sense of pride in the sense that I've got this, I can do this, I can make this happen, because we can't. And what that means is God has given each of us a sphere of influence in our life. For some of us, it's larger. For some of us, it's smaller. But just as God called this man of Judah to this place to do this thing, to deliver this message, God has placed each and every one of us in a place where we are there to be faithful and to make disciples. In your home, in your workplace, where your hobbies are, all of this is a place for us to make disciples. So can I tell you, stay-at-home mom, you've been given a glorious opportunity and sphere of influence to make disciples of those children who are there with you. Can I tell you, young single who's in college, you live in a dorm or in an apartment or somewhere where there are people around you and you've been given a sphere of influence where God has called you to make disciples. Can I tell you that, that where you work, there are people around you where God's given you a sphere of influence. And instead of us saying, I can't do this, I, I'm not equipped, I'm not there, God has called us to worry more about the message than the messenger and to be faithful. This is what the man of God did. Let us take it as an encouragement to be faithful in doing that. Second thing that stood out to me as I was looking at this was that spiritual claims must be founded on God's word. Spiritual claims must be founded on God's word. So we see that, that after the altar splits, Jeroboam is standing there with this dried up withered hand. The altar is split. Kind of a crazy scene if you think about it. Jeroboam asked the man of God, he says, would you, would you pray to the Lord your God and ask him to heal my hand? That's basically all he asks. He doesn't repent. He doesn't do anything. He just says, hey, would you pray to God, the one who just did all this, that he'd fix my hand? And so he fixes his hand. And then he says, all right, here, all right, hey, why don't you come back to my house? Come back to my place. I'll give you something to drink, give you something to eat, and I'll even give you a reward. And it's pretty obvious what Jeroboam is doing here. Jeroboam has said, okay, I can't strike you down. God's obviously on your side. But maybe what I can do is I can do something else to get you on my side, to get you in favor with me. And the man of God says, no, because when I came, God told me, don't eat, don't drink, and don't even go back the way that you came. You need to go deliver the message and then get out of there. That's what you're there for. Don't let anybody try to turn you the other ways. And so then we see the man of God, he goes back a different way. Well, once he leaves, I mean, it's like if we, if we kind of ended there, the story would be a little bit random, but then we would say, but okay, well, God's just, you know, against the pagan worship, we get that. But the story doesn't end there. Like, this is where it gets weird to me, okay? So the man's gone away, and then God says, okay, but I want to give you this other part. So he goes away, and there's an old prophet in the town. His son's like, Dad, you'll never believe what happened. We were up there today. Jeroboam was about to sacrifice. This guy out of Judah just comes up. Jeroboam, withered hand, altar broken. It was just crazy. And his dad said, well, which way did he go? He only went that way. All right, go get the donkey for me. And so he goes out there and he gets on his donkey and he, he finds the guy sitting under a tree. I don't know if he's tired or what. There's people sitting under a tree a lot of times in the Bible. If you'll notice this, you're reading, people sit under trees a lot in the Bible. So he's sitting under the tree and he, uh, he says, uh, hey, are you the guy who came out of Judah? He says, I am. He's like, well, hey, why don't you come back to my house? I want, I want, I want, to, I want to host you. I want to give you bread. I want to give you some water. 
And the the man of God again says, no, God told me that I'm not supposed to eat, drink. I'm supposed to go back another way, so I won't go back with you. So then this guy goes, well, hey, well, by the way, just so you know, I'm a prophet too. And before I came over here, an angel appeared to me and told me that I'm supposed to come tell you that you're to not do that, but come back to my house. And what happens? The man of God goes back. You see... What happened was the man of God had a clear word from God. He knew the truth. Obviously he did because he told Jeroboam and this prophet the very same thing. But then he believed the lie. Now it's crazy as you're studying this because the commentators are like fighting each other over whether this prophet is actually like a real prophet or not. Half of them are like, no, he's not really a real prophet. Obviously what he's trying to do is he's trying to get the man of God back because he wants to be in Jeroboam's favor and he wants Jeroboam to love him. And then some of them are like, well, no, he really is a true prophet. He, just, he was so worried about wanting this guy to be with him that he was willing to lie. But you see later how he kind of really sad about it. He really is a real prophet. But you know what? It's ambiguous, but that doesn't, it's because it doesn't matter whether he's a real prophet or not. Because what matters is this man of God had a very clear word from God and he believed a lie instead of being faithful and obedient to God. You see, I think this situation can really translate for us in a lot of ways again. And here's why. We live in a time where there's unprecedented access to books, podcasts, websites, and everything else that claim to be biblical and Christian. But there's a problem, is that not all of them teach the same thing, and some of them contradict very blatantly each other. But yet they're all claimed to be from God, from the Bible, deliberately Christian. And it is good for us to look at books and to read books and to listen to podcasts and and to read things that challenge us and encourage us and push us forward But if we're not deeply grounded in God's word, we will not be as discerning as we should be. Jesus himself told multiple parables about the wheat and the tares, or the good fish and the bad fish. And what he was showing was in the church, even those who claim to be of him and be born again, there will be people who will be right and true and good, and there will be others who will claim and masquerade, yet they will not be teaching the truth. So the question is, how do we know what we should believe? How do we know what we should follow? How do we become discerning? We have to be like the man of God in the beginning and know God's clear, true command in the Scriptures and allow that to guard our hearts. It reminds me really of Galatians 1.8. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and this way he says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. See, we've got to be discerning by knowing God's word. And that doesn't mean that we turn into heresy hunters, okay? Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. There are times that I watch some things that masquerade as Christian television, and me and some friends of mine in seminary, we used to sit around and play Spot the Heresy, And so we would watch these shows just looking. We're just trying to find everything that's wrong. That's not what I'm saying that we become. But what I am saying is that if we are saturated in God's word, first and foremost, we will see something that is contrary to it. And we won't follow it. And we won't believe it. You see, the man of God was different. 
He was a prophet. He had special revelation from God. We have God's word, his special revelation to us. And if something contradicts God's word, we don't follow it. We don't believe it. And can I tell you one thing as well? That includes things that are said from this stage. You need to be immersed in God's word so that if Fudd and I were to say something that was contrary to God's word, you would recognize it and you would know it. We are human and we are sinful and we love Jesus and we want more than anything for you to grow in the faith. We want to equip you. We want to challenge you. We want to encourage you. We want truth to be poured into you. But you have got to be full of God's word that you discern even what we say and say, is this contrary to scripture? What I'm teaching you this morning, are there bells going off in your head and says, that's not what the Bible says. I'm not saying this to, that it caused distrust in you. But we've got to know the scripture so that we can be discerning. So that if something that's contrary to God's word comes up, we can say, now wait just a minute. And I will tell you this, if any time Fudd or I say something, or anybody else preaches, and you say, you know what, how does that, that seems to contradict this in the Bible. I want you to come to me and say, now you said this, but in the Bible it says this, don't those contradict themselves? That is actually a joy and not a deterrent for us, because we know you're studying the scriptures. Paul says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test everything. Hold the word. So that means when a friend recommends a, a popular Christian book to you by an author you've never heard of, do some investigation. Read it with your Bible first and saying, okay, maybe this is right, this is not right. I did a search of the top Christian podcast and the top Christian bestsellers. There are many of them that will lead you into heresy. But they're all listed in the list right together. We've got to be discerning. Third thing we learn from this is this. Miracles inside, inside are needed more than miracles outside. Here's what I mean. So the man of God goes back to the prophet's house and he has some food. And so while they're eating, the Spirit of God speaks to this prophet who may or may not be a true prophet. doesn't really matter. God spoke through a donkey in the book of Numbers. So whether this guy's a true prophet or not, it doesn't matter. God comes up and he, he says, didn't I tell you, this is my paraphrase, I told you not to go back and eat anything there. And because you came back and you ate, you won't make it to the tomb of your fathers. You won't be buried at home. So they finish eating. I guess the guy decides, well, I'm here now. I'm already going to be punished for it. Might as well finish eating. He finishes eating. They saddle the donkey. Seems as though they give him a donkey. He goes away and he's riding down the road. And as he's riding down the road, a lion comes out and kills him. So then this lion comes out and kills him. And then he stands there by the body. Doesn't eat him. Doesn't kill the donkey. Which is an interesting thing. But he doesn't kill the donkey. And the man of God hears about it. And he goes and saddles another donkey, gets the body, mourns over him, and buries him. In this short story, do you realize there are really at least four miraculous things that have happened? So the man of God comes and he says, 
altar, altar, you're going to be torn down. Jeroboam stretches out his hand, and God miraculously withers and dries up his hand. First miracle. Second miracle, the altar by itself breaks into everything spilling out, saying, completing what God has said, showing the sign that it's true. Third miracle, Jeroboam's hand is restored. And then the fourth miracle is actually tied up in these little details because this lion and this donkey are just standing there as if they're standing guard over the body. Four different things that show God's direct intervention in this, situ- in this situation. One chapter. But you know what happens at the end of the chapter? Look at verse 33 and 34. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any he would, he ordained priests of the high places. Now, what we want to do is I want to look at this and I want to say, man, come on, Jeroboam. Didn't you see all of that? Like, your hand, dude. Your hand. And the altar. And then your hand again. And then you heard about the lion, didn't even eat the guy or kill the donkey. What's going on? Jeroboam, don't you, didn't you see all of that? And what it reminds us is that even though Jeroboam saw it, his heart wasn't changed. You see, we live in a very, very visual culture. We live in a culture that we really believe that seeing is believing. And that what's most important is that which is slick or is a graphic or whatever. And if we see something, if I see this, then people believe. And that has somehow kind of trickled in a lot of ways in some of our church thinking. And so what we think is, if I can do something visually, that will really draw people in. Or that will really draw people to Jesus. And one of the ways that we've seen it, at least I have seen it over the past several years, and maybe it's even longer than that, But there's something in our kind of our evangelical subculture, this idea that if we make things like movies, if we make a movie, and this movie, if we we can put it in theaters and we can sell tickets early and we can do it, it'll get a whole bunch of people there. And if all these people come see this movie, then revival will break out. Now, I, I don't say that. I don't want to disparage the hearts of the people. I think the people who want that to happen, I think they're saying, yes, we want God to come. But their idea then is, is if we do this visual thing, that will really get people. And what we forget is that a good movie or, well, a movie or slick graphics or HD video or a really good band or a really nice building or all of this stuff, that can't change somebody's heart. Only the Spirit can change somebody's heart. And so it helps us. This should be an encouragement to us when we go back and we think about point one and we're wanting to be a disciple maker. It moves us to pray less for our production and to pray more for the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is the one who changes people's hearts. You see, the Spirit is the one who brings the miracle of life. These four miracles didn't bring a single change to Jeroboam because the Spirit didn't come and change his heart. 
And so it helps us to remember, it drives us to our knees when we say, you know what, what I need more than anything is not to invite my neighbor or my coworker or whatever to the best presentation, the best looking, the slickest, most HD, high resolution, all this. That's not what matters most. What matters most is that I'm on my knees praying that the Spirit would bring life into their dead heart. That's what we need. Paul says in Ephesians 2, which we read last week in our journey reading, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, this language here, this isn't just spiritualized language. This isn't Paul kind of borrowing from the natural world to kind of help give us a small idea, kind of maybe what's kind of sort of happened. Oh, that's a neat analogy for what happens. This is truth. We were dead. Dead. Worse than physical death, we were spiritually dead. No hope in the world. There is no corpse in this world that can bring themselves back to life. We know that. You're dead, you're dead. And unless you're acted upon by the outside, you will remain dead. But God in His rich, opulent mercy reaches down and miraculously takes our dead heart and brings it to life. That is a miracle. And it's a miracle that only God can do. And so what we need now is to pray. Pray earnestly. Do good art. Do well. Do nice when we do things. That is important and that is good. But if we are not people of prayer, earnestly seeking the Spirit and we're relying just on some kind of outward, physical manifestation that that will change people's hearts, we've already lost the battle because it's the Spirit who opens people's hearts. So don't get sucked into that. Don't, don't think, well, if I just do this, pray, pray, pray. Because inside miracles are more important than outside miracles. The last thing I would say is this. This will be brief and we'll be done. We must always be on guard against sin in our lives. We must always be on guard against sin in our lives. One thing we notice is that every person in this story is sinful. Did you get that? Jeroboam may be the most obvious because he's making these calves. He's trying to get everybody else to bow down to him. He's doing all this stuff. He's, He's an idolater. The man of God disobeys God's commands. He believes the lie and disobeys. And the prophet is the one who lies to the man of God. Every single one of these people in this story are doing something against what God would want them to do. There's not one of us. I can't come to this story and look down at the people in it. I can't. I can't come down to the story and look down at Jeroboam because I'm an idolater at times. I set things in my heart up and I make them more important than God. 
I can't look down on the man of God because I've disobeyed God. I believe the lie that Satan told me. I believe the lie that my sin told me that I can find greater satisfaction in something other than God. And I've been untruthful. As much as I want to be true, I know that I have been untruthful and I've led people astray sometimes. What we need is we need somebody like Josiah to come and crush the altar and turn us from our sin. And that's what Jesus has done. He's given himself for us and has defeated our sin. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with it. It doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean that we no longer have sin in our life. In fact, if anything else, it makes us more conscious and more aware of that remaining sin that is in our life. And we've said before and we say again, Jesus doesn't come and put his finger on our sin because he loves making us feel guilty or he loves beating us down or he loves showing us just how small and insignificant we are. But Christ comes and he points out our sin and he says, this is what I died for. This is what I have already defeated. This is is keeping you from fully experiencing and knowing me as intimately as you should. So repent of that. Turn away from it. Don't believe its lie. Believe me. It will not fulfill you. It will not satisfy you. It is not good for you. I will fulfill you. I will satisfy you. I am good for you. And he turns our hearts to remember the truth of the gospel. That as he makes these promises, we know that he will fulfill them because he's already come and given himself for us. And so we're reminded as we look at all of these people in the story and they all fall short and they all sin, we look at it and we see our own. And what Jesus calls us to is he calls us to repent and believe. Repent really just means to turn away from that and turn to Jesus. Why? Because we believe his promises. Because we believe the Bible. We believe that God is for us and that God is not against us. That he loves us. He is all powerful and he is all good. And he wants to bless us. And he wants us to be drawn near to him. So even as we see their sin, we're reminded of our sin. And we hear the words of Jesus to turn and follow him. So what I want to encourage you is to think about passage like 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. Not survive. You will live. God has called us. He's called us in. And so what he's doing now to every single one of us, myself included, he is saying, turn. Turn and believe. For some of you this morning, it may be the first time. Maybe you've been living your own life. Maybe you've been seeking your own righteousness. Maybe you've been trying to do your own thing, live good enough, or caring less about God. And you just showed up this morning. And what Jesus says is, you can't do that. You can't fix it. You can't get to me. So I came to you. Now turn and come to me. And for those of us who are believers, we've been believers for a while, we've been changed by Jesus, and we've, maybe we've kind of gotten over that, or maybe we just kind of get into the doldrums and we just kind of walk in through it. Jesus is saying, I didn't come for you to survive, I came for you to live. 
So turn. Turn from death. Turn from that which sucks the life out of your soul, which depletes your joy. And turn to me where you will find the fullness of it all. Remember, the message is more important than the messenger. Be faithful to what God has called you to do. Remember that we've got to test all things against the Bible. We have to know. Remember that what's most important is that a miracle takes place in the heart, not as much outside. And that we all sin, but Christ is there faithfully, gently calling us to repent and turn to Him. Random stories sometimes are really good for our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us a story about a no-name prophet and a no-name man of God and a broken altar and a lion. And God, I just pray that you would take this. God, I pray that that anything that I would have said that, that may be contrary, God, that you would cause it to be forgotten, that anything that is good and holy and righteous that points us to Jesus, that is true to your word, that you would take it and you would plant it deep into our hearts. And it would flourish. And we would love you. And we would hate sin. And we would love others. And we'd be faithful to your command to make disciples. And we would rely only on the power of the gospel. And not on anything in and of ourselves. And that you would be exalted, honored, glorified, magnified, and shown as amazing as you are. Because of what you've done. Father, take this and use it for the glory of your name. We ask it in Christ's name.